Guardhouse is excited to be a strategic partner of ASIAL and a key sponsor of the ASIAL podcast series. This collaboration signifies our dedication to innovation and connecting with industry leaders. Together, we're shaping the future of the security sector. Join over 250 of Australia's leading security companies who trust Guardhouse, the premier workforce management system designed for the physical security business landscape. Be part of the movement setting new standards in the industry. and gentlemen welcome back to the security insider podcast and today we are speaking with dan Ariely. dan is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at duke university in the u.s he has a phd in cognitive psychology and a second phd in business administration in addition to his role at duke university dan was a columnist with the wall street journal from 2012 until 2022 and has written three new york times best-selling books predictably irrational the upside of irrationality and the honest truth about dishonesty dan also co-produced the 2015 documentary dishonesty the truth about lies and has just released his fourth book, Misbelief, What Makes Rational People Believe Irrational Things. Today we are speaking with Dan about what drives dishonesty and how we can better understand dishonesty with a view to minimizing dishonest behavior in our teams and in our industry. Dan, welcome to the podcast and thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's lovely to be here. I wish it could have been in person. Um, So let's start the podcast by asking you a a really simple and short question. Easy place to start. Why do we lie? A very easy question. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the, the standard uh, idea of why uh, we lie is that we make some cost-benefit analysis. Right? Yep. Uh, honey, how do I look in that dress? What's the benefit of saying the truth? What is the benefit of not? Uh, how will the evening go? And when we do kind of a cost-benefit analysis. Um, the, the reality is that the story is much more complex uh, because of a very, very interesting mechanism we call rationalization. And rationalization basically means that there's the outside world and there's an inside world and they, there's a gap between the perception in, in the two of them and rationalization makes things seem different on the inside than they are on the outside. So um, I don't know, have you ever been on an online dating app? Uh, not, not in recent years, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good place to watch human, human yeah. humanity. I recommend it even if you're not looking. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good kind of perspective. You know, people... People say all kinds of things like, yes, I know that I just gained five pounds, but my real weight is less. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, this is my age, but the reality is that I look young for my age and, and, and so on. And, and people rationalize. And, and I'll give you a, an example from a study I did. So, so this study, uh, I used to own a vending machine. So the vending machine was set to university, uh, big sign, 75 cents per candy, six different candies. People put the money and they press the button. But for this particular experiment, I set the machine for a price of zero. 
Now, people didn't know it, but it meant that they would put the money, they would press the button, and they would get all their money back because all the money is more yep. than zero. And I had a big sign that said, if the machine is broken, if something is not working well, call this number. Yep. And it was my, my phone number. And the first question is, how many people called? What's your sense? <laughs> I, I, my, my sense is probably a lot less than we would like to hope. That's right. So zero. <laughs> yep. Zero calls. But the next, the next question is, how many candies would people take? Now, here's a machine that gives you candy. When would people stop? And the interesting finding was that the majority of people took three or four. Nobody took, nobody took more than four. Really? And, and of course, the question is, why do people lie? But the question is also, why don't people lie more? Yep. And the reality is that what stops us is our inability to rationalize. So here is what happens in people's minds. People say to themselves, ooh, free candy. I want some more. How can I justify? And then they say to themselves, I remember another vending machine that took my money and gave me, gave me candy. And this other vending machine is probably a close relative of this one. Yep. And I'm not actually stealing. I'm uh, balancing my vending karma. Right. So in fact, in fact, what happened is that people are not realize fully that they're stealing. Yeah. They're able to rationalize. Now, they're stealing. <laughs> There's yep. no other way to, to say it. They're stealing candy, but nevertheless, they don't think of themselves as stealing. In the outside world, they're stealing. In the inside world, they're balancing their, their karma. So, so what we find is a couple of things. First of all, we find that people don't do the cost-benefit analysis. I'll give you an example for this. But the second thing is that people cheat up to the level that they feel good as human beings with that. So it's as if we, we want to benefit from dishonesty, but we don't want to feel that we're bad people. Thanks to rationalization, we can cheat a little bit and still feel good. Yeah, well, there, there's an interesting point in there because for a long time, that simple model of rational crime, which was the the standard that people use to try and explain crime, can you can you walk us through that simple model of rational crime? Because yeah. to me, it makes zero sense. Because the example yeah. you use in your book of someone driving past, for example, a service station and thinking how much money is in the till and what are the chances I would get caught if I took that money. I mean, I don't know that I've ever actually thought that. And so it's hard for me to believe that that was a, a model that, you know, economists used to explain crime. And so tell, tell us a little bit about that. And then yeah. I'm interested in exploring what you found in the fudge factor to explore why that model doesn't apply. Yeah, so, so the standard model is all a model of cost-benefit. And it's the model of economics, but it's also a model of law, and it's often the model of policy. It says we look at the cost-benefit analysis. We, we walk into a convenience store and we say, how much money is in the till? What are my chances to get away with it? If I get punished, how much time will I get in prison? And we weigh the cost and benefit, and we decide if this is worth it or not. Because... In economics, it's all about 
rewards and incentives, positive and negative incentives. Now, of course, as you said, this does not describe our subjective feeling. Yeah. Like, you know, we don't go by a grocery store like, how often have we thought this? Probably never. <laughs> um, how often have we gone to our friend's house for dinner? We went to the bathroom and then we realized they have really nice towels. Yeah. <laughs> and we said, oh, you know, or, or how often do we go to a restaurant and say, oh, they have really nice cutlery. Can I take some home? The reality is that we don't think this way. Even when we take something like the death penalty, you know, in the U.S., we have some states with the death penalties and some states without. And you would say, if people think about the cost-benefit analysis, then states that have the death penalty will have less, punish, uh, less, less crime that is punished by death, potentially by death. No evidence yeah. for that. So, so the, the economic theory is that people go into those situations with a deliberate mindset, cost-benefit, what, what we do. It doesn't describe our experience. It doesn't describe criminals. By the way, in California, they had this thing called three, three strikes and you're out. Commit three crimes, steal three slices of pizza one after the other, and you go to jail for life. Yeah. They thought, oh, this would certainly stop crime. Who would commit the third crime when you can go to jail for life? No impact whatsoever. So... The rational theory of crime that people think about the cost-benefit analysis makes some logical sense, but it's not a good description of, of behavior. Um, and, and we can go on and on about more examples for this. So, so now the question is, what does explain human And what we find is what we started talking about is that we want to have the cake and eat it too. We yeah. want to benefit from cheating, and we want to look in the mirror and feel that we're good people. Yeah. How do we do both? We cheat just a little bit. In fact, we cheat up to the level that the fudge factor allows us to. So we can say we're three pounds lighter than we really are on an online dating app. We can't say 20 pounds. Uh, we can steal a pencil from work, but we can't take money from a petty cash box. Yeah. So there's all kinds of things that, that, that increase. Everything that increases rationalization increases dishonesty. Oops, look at this love thing. And everything that decreases rationalization decreases the, the level of, of dishonesty. But eventually it's not the, about the cost-benefit analysis. It's not about a, a thoughtful consideration of what we stand to gain, what we stand to lose. So I'm interested in something that you highlighted there about, you know, we can steal a pencil from work, but we don't steal cash. This was something interesting that you talked about in, in your book, you know, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty and how we are one or two steps removed from certain crimes. Can you talk to me a little bit about and explain to the listeners why it is for people, and this is particularly important in an online world where we're seeing an increase in cybercrime, why it yeah. is from your research that it's easier for people to steal, say, a credit card number than it is cash. Yeah, yeah. so first of all, a couple of uh, examples. Uh, one example is we, we put in a, in a refrigerator Coke cans that were ours, and we saw how quickly they disappeared. And then we put a plate with six $1 bills. And people basically don't take the money and they steal the cocaine. 
Um, another, another experiment is people did this self-graded test for five minutes. And let's say they solved four out of the 20 problems. In one condition, they came to the experiment and they say, I solved four problems, pay me for my four problems. In the, in the second one, they said, I solved four problems, give me four tokens. And then they would take the tokens, they would walk 12 feet to the side and change the tokens for money. So the two situations were the same, payment and everything, but in one of them, you asked to be paid more. Another one, you just asked to get another token. And people lied more in the token condition. Yeah. Right? And this is all about what's called psychological distance. If I, if I was there in, in your office next to you, and you went to the bathroom, and you forgot your wallet, what is the percentage of people who would open your wallet and take some money from there? That's a very direct crime. And if you do that, you, you have to basically accept that you're a crook, yeah. that you're a thief. Like there's no other way around. But there's lots of other things that people do that don't make them feel like they are, they are crooks. Now, forgive me about my understanding of uh, Australia, but do, do I remember correctly a few years ago you had some um, big issue with your superannuations? I'm, I'm sure there have been a, a multitude of issues over the course of history. Okay. So, you know, you look at something like retirement, and, and these are people, and, and there are all kinds of things that happen that basically cost lots of money. Yeah. Now, would the same people have gone to somebody's house and taken $10 away from them? Probably not. Yeah. There is something about the distance. By the way, we also don't get offended as much. Right? Imagine that we were the jury in a trial of somebody who went to somebody's house and stole their TV and $2,000. Yep. Or imagine that we were on trials for somebody who um, wrote an algorithm for money transfer that eventually ended up costing you know, Australians $2,000. Yep. Right? Our outrage would be very different as well yep. we, because we don't judge it as, as harshly. So the more things become psychologically distant, it's not about money, it's about credit, crypto, online. It's not one person, it's many. It's multiple steps removed from money. Yeah. It becomes easier and easier. I think in, in, in your world of security, I think that, you know, getting... <laughs> doing some scheme to basically break into some computers and, and, and holding ransom probably doesn't feel that bad to people. Yeah. They probably can tell all kinds of stories, right? It's a big company that's paying. They have insurance anyway. I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for crypto. And, and they, they actually deserve this because they were not uh, prepared. Maybe now uh, it would teach them a lesson, uh, I'm sure that those, those people, um, you know, we see, we see a tremendous increase in cybercrime. And I don't think it's only because it's easy um, f physically to do. 
Yeah. I think it's also because it's easy emotionally to do. Yeah. You know, you you don't you don't feel like you're stealing from any specific person. Yeah. Well, I guess that comes back to that model that you spoke about earlier of, you know, the balance between how dishonest can we be without potentially eroding our vision of ourselves as honest and honorable people. If I'm yep. if, if I'm simply having a package delivered to my house instead of my neighbor's house, then, you know, is that really stealing? Kmart's got lots and lots of money. They earn billions a year. They're not going to miss it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you think about um, cheating on taxes and I think packages, like there, there's lots of things that we call victimless crime. They're not really victimless crime. But but it's, the whole concept is psychological distance, and as psychological distance increases, we're more likely to do it, and also rationalization, right? So so imagine that you're angry with the government. Yep. You don't want to pay taxes anyway because taxes are expensive, but if you're angry with the government, you could say, oh, now I have a reason not to pay them. They deserve it. Yeah. They tricked me on on that. By the way, in some of our experiments on on dishonesty, this was, um, you know, in like 2012 or so, we reminded people of the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. And we reminded them how everybody did what they were supposed to do. Just that the banks were bad actors. Yeah. Uh, And guess what? You remind people of that, more people are willing to be dishonest. You take physicians and you get you remind them how hard medical school was and how much time commitment and so on. And then you look at their likelihood to take gifts from pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. It goes up. So this notion is to, to it's about justification. Yeah. Rationalization and justification is the is the big deal. And and if you don't mind, I'll tell you a story within the business context sure so there was a guy that we interviewed for this for this movie his name is walt and he went he worked for a big telecom company and he used to be the sales person for big companies like ibm so he worked for the telecom with with his big clients and you know he would give them telephony services and they would pay and everything would be would be fine and then at some point, they started giving him more and more clients, less savory, more like, you know, 900 numbers and reading cards and sex, phone sex services, all kind of things like that. And he didn't like it because they were not nice clients and they would often not pay. And he went to the people who signed them up and he said, stop signing these people up. And they said, no, we get paid for signing people up. You're getting paid for collecting. We are doing our job. You do your job. Anyway, he tried, he tried, he tried, he tried. He couldn't get things done. And, and the company was very upset with him because there was this debt that was not paid. And in modern accounting terms, if you have a debt that is not paid, it's not paid, but it's also you have to discount the other debt by debt percentage. So it's, it's, twice, as, uh, it's twice as bad. So anyway, he, he was given this impossible 
Impossible task. So what did he do? He went back to the basement where the accounting department was, and he just erased, erased debt. The company owed $250,000. He made it zero. Anyway, he kept on doing it, and people were less angry with him. <laughs> now, the company didn't make money, of course, but they didn't have to discount the other debt by that. Anyway, he keeps on doing it for a while. At some point, he gets worried, like, for how long can he continue? So he goes to talk to his previous boss. And his previous boss said, I'll take care of it. He said, go to your next company. Tell them that unless they start paying you, you'll disconnect them. Then call me your previous boss. Tell me the name of the company. I'll take it from there. He does that. His old boss goes to that company and he says, you seem like you have an interesting business. I want to invest. Show me the books. They showed him the books. And then he would say, you have this big debt to MCI. I'll tell you what. I'll pay your debt to MCI. He knows, of course, it's, it's zero. And in exchange, you will start sending me this amount of money every month to an account in the Cayman Islands. And uh, you will start fixing your business so that from now on you will pay. And they did. And money started appearing in the Cayman Islands, and they started paying the debts to this telephony company, and everything looks good. And they do it for more and more and more companies. Eventually, of course, they get caught, and, and Walt gets to be about nine years in prison. Ouch. Um, but if you think about that story, Walt did not steal for himself. Yeah. He was given a task by the company that he couldn't deliver on. He got unfair pressure on him. And, and he didn't start by stealing to himself. He started by just zeroing out accounts. Yep. And then also he didn't do it by himself. It was his previous boss who would do the dirty deal. He actually described the day when he went to the Cayman Island and he realized how much money they had. He was shocked. Yeah. Right? So it was multiple steps removed. Like in his mind, when his boss was doing it, it was actually good for the company. They were not going to pay anyway. Now they're starting to pay at least. Yeah. So, so this is much more of the story of dishonest, where it's a story of rationalizations and multiple steps and a slippery slope and having unreasonable pressures that we can't solve in a different way. You know, there's very little embezzlement. Like if people were just selfish, they would embezzle. Yeah. But, but in Walt's case, you know, his cheating initially was for the company. If you think about it, yeah. it was very altruistic of him. He took personal risk. Eventually, he went to jail. But in the beginning, he took personal risk to help the company. Yeah. Right? And a lot of things are like that. You mentioned earlier, you know, it's a small example, but the example of taking, say, pencils from work. And there was an example in your book uh, around a gift shop where they found that, you know, money, cash, uh, you know, ice creams, all sorts of things were going missing over a period of time. And I'm interested in this from a loss prevention point of view for, you know, loss prevention managers in large retail chains, but even security managers within corporations, because it seems to me from what you've said today and, and things I've heard you say in the past that this flexible model of our own, you know, honest and honourable selves is also impinged to some degree by a sense of entitlement. 
when we're wronged or when we perceive that we've been wronged, we believe that we're entitled to compensation or we're entitled to, you know, recompense. But you did some interesting research with moral reminders. Can you explain to the listeners what moral reminders are and how they can impact on that sense of entitlement and our willingness to steal? Yeah. So so first of all, I, I think that this notion about deserving is very interesting. And and some people feel justified to create sabotage, right? So that's terrible, right? Yeah. When they basically are just creating damage, breaking chairs, doing all kinds of things that nobody benefits from, just sabotage. And then and then at some point people also get a sense that um you know you owe me. I, I deserve, uh, I deserve, I deserve some. Um, and, and that sense of entitlement is um, very easy to create, right? When people are filled wrong or um, that they're not getting the fair share. But also, it also happens when people see how the boss behaves. So let me, let me give an example. So, so imagine the following experiment. You come to the lab, and I say, look, we have two tasks today. You'll have to throw a dice and so on. We'll have two tasks. And um, the only thing that will matter between them is the payment scheme for the task. In one version, you can make up to $4. In the other version, you can make up to $40. Let's flip a coin and see if you get the $4 version or the $40. You flip a coin, and no matter what you flip, I say, ah, sorry, you got the $4 version. But, and now I I look around and say, listen, listen, John, my boss is not here today. So you you were given $3 to pay for your transportation cost. If you'll give me those $3, I'll pretend that you got the other coin flip. So I'm basically asking you for a bribe. Yep. And and the first question is, what percentage of people bribe the experimenter? And the answer is almost everybody. More than ninety percent. Now, wow. It's not as if it's not as if people um, you know go ahead and bribe everybody. But this is a case where the research assistant, the one controlling the experiment, asked for a bribe. Yep. Right, like you can imagine, this is the somebody on the top that is corrupt. Like imagine a country that you think that the that the president is not is not very honest, or you know does all kinds of what? What? How quickly does it go? Now, so so one was lots of people bribed, but then in the task that they had, where they could make up to. $40, they had a chance to cheat. Yep. And cheating went up as well. So it's not only that they, they moved there, their moral values changed. So, okay, people cheat here. Yep. The person running the experiment cheats. No problem. Let me cheat more. So, so it, is, it is important to figure out what is the atmosphere in the company and what is the atmosphere that comes that comes from the top. And if yeah. the atmosphere that comes from the top is one in which ethics is, is, a, is a challenge, it's a, you know, people are going to be willing to do, to do much more.
the 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 thing about the the moral reminders is is the following idea and the idea is that we we all have our moral standards we all have our moral standards but at the moment sometimes it's easier not to adhere to them yeah right um so we kind of conveniently forget or don't pay enough attention Right? but but the idea is that is we need those those moral uh, those moral reminders now um there was a beautiful study for example that looked at whether people give more money to charity in a market in an Arab country just after the muazin calls for the prayer yeah right people were just reminded of religion do they give more yes they give more Uh, we got people to sign an honor code do they cheat less yes they cheat they cheat less right think about court court is a very interesting thing you go to court you put your hand on the Bible and you say I swear that everything I will say he will be the truth now yeah. in legal terms we usually get people to sign at the end not in the beginning right you have a four <laughs> Yeah. you feel 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 you sign at the end and in the legal mindset we say oh it's to verify that you've said the end yeah but in fact in the oral tradition we understand it's about the beginning not the end right think about how strange it is yeah you would say shouldn't we pe- have people in court testify at the end that everything they've said is is the truth no yeah but what we need is to is to get to people say okay Now let let me with or even when we say things right we say to be honest yeah and then we say something yeah right we 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 basically increase our own awareness and increase our own stakes so getting people to to be aware of that is incredibly important now we don't know how long it lasts but if you have a very sensitive task that you want people to be uh, honest on it's good to be increase awareness for honesty just just before that yeah another another important component is the culture of honor the culture of honor and and this is what um you know some professional societies are about I think about physicians they have this this white coat and the stethoscope and all kinds of things that Get them to remember uh, who they are and what is their obligation and their their roles and so so the the, um, the 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 culture of honor i I looked at it mostly within the military academies you know in the u s we have lots of military yep. academies they are very different from each other, but some of them, specifically the marines, are unbelievable. I don't know if you've met somebody who is a marine when somebody is a marine there are marines for life yeah you know they they stand in a different way and they have a different type of respect and and you know everything yeah. about them is a is a different story now you know I'm not sure we want uh, to to take the marines approach to to everything in life but <laughs> I think we we do need to think about let's say let's take politicians or bankers Or physicians I think we do need to strengthen uh, the codes 
the codes of conduct uh, yep. uh, for this. Now, there's one thing I, I want to say before I forget. So I'm imagining the security industry. I'm imagining the digital security industry. Yep. And I'm imagining that the biggest enemy for the security industry are not the bad people out there, but it's the good people who work for the company, but don't want to comply with the security measures. Yep. Is that, is that fair? Yep. Like my guess, and you know this, but my guess would be the 90% of the bad behavior comes because it's people who are the weak link and not technology. Yep. Somebody made the password that is too easy. They search on the website they shouldn't. They opened a link that they shouldn't. They gave their password to somebody else, all kinds of things. Uh, things like that. Now, how do we get how do we get people in the organization uh, to appreciate security in IT? That's a that's a very very challenging situation. Why is it very challenging? Because when everything works fine, uh, security is just a hassle. Yeah. And when something doesn't work, it's security's fault. Like, you know, it's a very, um, there's something very ungrateful about this, this position. But, but there's all kinds of things that security could do. For example, um, a lot of time what we evaluate is not what we get, but we evaluate the effort that has gone into that. So... An example is um, I locked myself out of my house a few years ago, quite a few years ago. Yep. A locksmith came, two minutes, gave me an expensive bill. So we talked about his, yep. his, his strategy. And he talked about how when he was a beginning locksmith, it would take him forever. He would lock the brake. He would, the, he would break the lock. He would charge people for his time and for the new lock. People paid him and gave him a tip. Yep. He said, now he's so fast, he doesn't break the lock. Nobody tips him and everybody argues about the price. Yep. IT professionals need to let everybody know how much effort has gone into that. Yep. Here is how many attacks we have prevented. and Here's how many cycles we did. And here's all the things we've done. Right? Yep. We, we think that people would appreciate us if we just did our job. No. People don't know how to appreciate us. We need to give them a sense for, for what to appreciate. And, and IT department, actually in general, IT is not very good in, in showing magic. Yeah. There's, a, there's this beautiful study that looks at kayak. So imagine you, you type a search query, you press enter, and you get the results immediately. People yeah. are happy. Yeah. Condition two, you type a search query, you press enter. You wait 12 seconds. You get a dark black screen and the wheel of death. Yep. And you wait 12 seconds. People hate that. Condition three, people type a query. They press enter. They wait 12 seconds, but these 12 seconds are like kayak. It's full. We're searching United. We're searching American. Things are moving on the screen. Now people are happier than if they didn't wait at all. How wow. come? It's not as if people say, oh, yes, I want to wait. It's people say, wow, now I understand what I'm getting. Yeah. And and that's one of the things that that invisible industries like IT need to create 
is this feeling of wow now i understand what uh, what i'm getting because appreciation would come only from from there yeah and then the second the second bizarre thing is that you know people don't have a good algorithm for what's easy and hard to do for hackers yeah like you know what's a good password yep. like you could say oh a good password is a random password including you know not going to be easy for people to remember right so if if you ask for something that is so difficult people will write it with a with a note but you know how do you help people have a better understanding of what they're up against yeah what's it what's a and, and we're really not doing a good job at that we're not helping people understand what's an easy and hard password like what if you take a phrase longer shorter yes name no name uh, anyway lots of lots of things to um to think about but but there's no question that the human element is is probably the weakest and people are not doing it on purpose uh, oh by the way another thing that i was contacted by a Japanese company at some point. And they wanted to talk about what do you do to make it less embarrassing for people to admit that they clicked on an email with a phishing link. Yep. Right? When people click on that link, you want them to admit immediately. Yep. But of course, it's also very embarrassing. Yep. Good. Anyway, I think there's lots of interesting work on the psychology of it. Yeah. I know that we're we're coming towards the end of the time that that you've got available so I wanted to finish by asking you if you can answer this because I don't know that it's such a simple question how can we encourage greater honesty and try and drive better outcomes and in the example you alluded to a few minutes ago with things like passwords we know that there has been done there has been research done in the past where it's like, okay, well, from a behavioral economic point of view, we can do certain things to encourage password password security being better. So we know that, for example, having to change your password every 30 days and remember a new password is very painful for people. So what we do is we say to them, okay, remember a line from your favorite movie or remember a line from your favorite book and you're going to use that entire sentence, which may be a 128-character string, as your password. And if you use that 128-character string, we're not going to make you change your password every 30 days. Now, all of a sudden, there's a benefit for them. There's a payoff. We're getting them to do the thing we want by giving them something in return. How do we That's encourage right. better honesty? So first of all, I really like that approach. But by the way, I would, uh, I would uh, maybe say something like, so, you know, this 128 character, whatever you get, yep. is, is really an opportunity for reflection. So for example, I would say, think about the sentence that express your gratitude to someone. Or think about the sentence that expresses your love uh, to somebody, right? It, it would just be nice if that sentence that people type multiple times a day was actually something that helped their their well being. Yep. Um, in some in in some way. Um, but look, honesty is is a little bit like dieting. It's an ongoing struggle. Um. You know, whether it's the question of, honey, how do I look in that dress? Or, 
filling our taxes or admitting how much we really weigh on an online dating app. It's a, it's a constant, it's the constant struggle. And, and what we need to do is we need to take the things that are important to us and we need to elevate them to a higher level of importance. So, so think about what are the things that people adhere to? The things that people adhere to eventually become part of their identity, right? If you're, if you're a vegetarian, you know, you don't need anybody to watch you. Yeah. It's, it's you inside. How do we get the things that are important for us as individual and society? How do we make them to be in that category? That's, that's why we talked about the Marines, right? When it's yeah. a part of your identity that you say, yes, honey, how do I look in that dress? It's yeah. tempting, but no, but there are things that are just not done. Yeah. That are not done. So that's one answer. The second answer is recognizing that it is an ongoing struggle and companies need to have those discussions. Yeah. I, I worked with one big company and what we did was we took some executives and they on video admitted to some big failures. Yeah. You know, they never admitted to an immediate failure. It was all something in the past. But we created a system where there was these videos and people saw them and talked about them and so on. It's tempting. It's tempting. Yeah. Misbehavior is tempting. And many times it's it's for the company and not against it. And and we need to you want to be in a meeting. You want to be proposing something slightly unethical, and you want to create the conditions under which one of your collaborators could say, I'm not doubting you, but I do want to bring up on whether this is actually an ethical thing yeah. to do. It, it, again, it's a little bit like a diet. We need to think and discuss, and it needs to be front of mind. I wish there was like a module yeah. that people could take it and be solved. No, it's not, it's not like that. We need to do tremendously more. And, and sadly, the way most companies are going about it is to punish people. The problem with punishing is it doesn't prevent much, but then it gets people to not admit anything. Yeah. So we need to understand it's part of human nature. We need to understand it's an online struggle. We need to try and have an ongoing discussion and awareness and saliency of these topics. And then we need to try and get it to be part of people's identity. Yeah. Yes. I, uh, I, I heard a wonderful story some years ago from uh, someone very senior within a, the, what's called the Gracie Jiu Jitsu family talking about how he had a couple of young boys growing up and they were always constantly fighting and rolling and doing all sorts of things. And he would say to them from an honesty point of view, tell me who broke something or who did the wrong thing. If you admit to it, yes, you're going to get punished, but your punishment will be for two minutes as opposed to if I catch you lying, it'll be for two weeks. So, you yeah. know, admit to it and you'll reduce <clears throat> the penalty greatly. Yes, there'll be a penalty, but you'll greatly reduce the penalty by being honest. Yeah. Another, another way to think about it is to say it's all about reputation. Yep. You know, if you think about reputation, reputation is really a long-term thing, right? You're saying, don't worry about now. Think about your reputation. And if you're my son and you're going to tell me the wrong thing and I find that you're this, 
it's going to hurt your reputation. You're going to really suffer for a long time, right? So, so like worry also about your reputation and come up with it. And that's also, I think, very important. Yeah. Now, I'm mindful of the time. So you, you've got a number of books out. Uh, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, you've got Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and you've just released your new book. Uh, tell us a little bit about the new book. So this is the, the book called Misbelief. Yep. And um, it's really about my adventures with the COVID deniers but mostly about the, the psychology of misbelief. You know, we all people, we all have people in our closer or further away circle that five years ago we said, oh, we see things eye to eye with the other person. Yep. And now we say, I don't understand. Yeah. How, how are me and this other person looking at the reality and interpreting it so, so differently? And what this book is trying to do is to understand the psychology. How do people basically start adopting these false narratives and start going down the, what I call the funnel of misbelief. And it's a, it's a very important story. And, um, 10 years ago, if you ask the question of what's holding modern society back, what are the big challenges we have? I don't think misinformation and misbelief would have been one of the top. Yeah. Now I think it is. You know, if whatever, whatever thing we want to tackle next, Without all of us agreeing in some way, uh, we're not going to make to, to make any steps forward. So I think it's one of the most important questions of our time, and one that is incredibly important to try and understand and get better at. Yeah, and I know for a long time you were writing the column in the Wall Street Journal, but you're not doing that now. If people want to find you or, or learn more about your work, where do they find you? I believe you're doing a podcast. Is that correct? I have a little podcast, but mostly it's my website, just www.danarielli.com. That's probably the best, the best place. Well, Dan, thank you very much for your time today. We could talk for hours. I have so many questions for you, but it's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, there are plenty more like this one in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store, and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. Guardhouse is excited to be a strategic partner of ASIAL and a key sponsor of the ASIAL podcast series. This collaboration signifies our dedication to innovation and connecting with industry leaders. Together, we're shaping the future of the security sector. Join over 250 of Australia's leading security companies who trust Guardhouse, the premier workforce management system designed for the physical security business landscape. Be part of the movement setting new standards in the industry.